You can go ahead and have a seat and join me in prayer. Lord, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. You deserve the praise from our lips 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You deserve all the glory, all the honor, all the praise because you are worthy of it. You are our creator, you are our redeemer, you are our sustainer. We give you all the glory. We ask you now to open your word to us that we might behold wonderful things in it. We pray that you would transform us by the renewal of our minds. Transform us as we think about and as we meditate on and as we internalize and embrace the truth we see in Scripture. We need you now. I echo all of these prayers we've been praying, singing. We need you. We need your grace. Apart from you, this is meaningless. The Holy Spirit of God, please come. Quicken us. Awaken us to your truth. Do it for the glory of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, what a joy to open God's word together. Join me in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. And let's bend our hearts to the precious truth of our God. So our normal practice here on Sunday mornings at Miller Heights Baptist Church is to study the Bible just a passage at a time with the only agenda being what does God say? The only agenda. What does God say? All Scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable to equip us for every good work God has called us to do. God has called us to do all kinds of good works and every good work that He's called us to we're equipped to do by the truth of God's Word. So as God's people, our life and health and maturity literally depends on our intake of God's Word. And so this is a holy moment as we turn to God's truth and seek to apply it to our lives. Romans 12, verses 3-8 through this morning. Follow along as I read God's Word over us. This is what Paul says. For by the grace given me, Given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the authoritative truth of our God. May he burn his wisdom into our souls. Well, we can see from that very first word, for, F-O-R, that this passage is connected to the two verses we looked at last week. So last week we saw that Paul has called us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. By His incredible mercies, 
We are to offer ourselves fully to God. Everything we are and everything we have laid on His altar. But what exactly does that mean? What does that look like in real life? Well, verse 2, Paul began to flesh out what it looks like by saying we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be, here's the key word, transformed by the renewal of our minds. When our minds are renewed, he says we can discern the perfect will of God. And so verse 3 continues this conversation about how we're to think. God is in the process of transforming us by renewing our minds. Well, what is it that we're to think about? Well, Paul continues that discussion. He helps renew our minds by giving us some things to think on, some things to know, some things to embrace, some things to lay as foundation in our lives for how we think as followers of Jesus. As our minds are renewed, here's the kind of transformation that will take place. Paul gives us at least three specifics for what we are to think about ourselves. How are we to think about ourselves? He gives us three specifics. Number one, think of yourself with humility. Think of yourself with humility. Look at verse 3 again. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So notice Paul says, by the grace given to me, I say this. This is Paul reminding his readers of God's grace in his apostleship. Paul has been set apart for the gospel of the grace of God. And God's grace to Paul means God's grace to us because Paul is being faithful to proclaim these truths and this is all God's grace. It is grace to be given these practical instructions that we find in this passage and through the rest of the book of Romans. These are loving instructions from our gracious Father. So receive these instructions as God's grace to you. Notice that Paul is not giving these commands to a select few Christians in Rome. Paul isn't writing to the leaders of the church at Rome or to those that are really super spiritual. Notice he says, this to everyone among you. I say this to everyone among you. These are instructions meant to benefit and bless all of God's people in Jesus. And I think that includes us today. We are part of the everyone among you that Paul is exhorting in this passage. And so here's my counsel to you. Hear this instruction as if it was written to you. Because it is. Because it is written specifically for us. Notice Paul insists that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. By the grace given to me, I say to, to all of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Yikes. This is painful to our pride, is it not? Here's how proud I am. I am so proud that I can hear this command 
to not think of myself more highly than I should. And one of my first thoughts is, I don't do that. This is how proud we are. That we can hear this and start thinking, that's talking about someone else, isn't it? Paul says that it's possible, not only possible, but likely that we misread our own maturity level. We are not as spiritual, as mature as we think we are. Pride in our thinking results in spiritual apathy and laziness. And thus, the counsel is, the exhortation is, not to think of yourself more highly than we ought. Consider how prevalent this thinking is, this thinking of yourself more highly than you should is. With just a few examples, all of these I'm guilty of. When you see others leading or teaching or preaching, do you think, that should be me. When you see someone singing or leading music, do you think, I could do better than that? When you hear someone has been asked to be a church leader or serve in some official capacity, do you think, you would have been a better choice? When someone is promoted or praised, do you start thinking of all the ways you have been passed over? Here's one of the ways that we need to renew our minds. Here's one of the ways that God is in the process right now of renewing our minds. Stop thinking of yourself so highly. Rather, Paul says, notice, think of yourself with sober judgment. That is, be in touch with reality. Sober means to be accurate. Think of yourself accurately, with a clear mind, not with a mistaken notion that you're indispensable to God and to His purposes. See, pride causes us to think of ourselves as more important than we actually are. Humility, on the other hand, helps us see ourselves in light of how far we have to go, how much transforming still needs to take place in our lives. Let's be honest this morning. In hopes of renewing our minds, we all, at times, tend to exaggerate our own importance and value. We all do this. We think we are wiser than we actually are. We think we are further along in godliness than we actually are. We think of ourselves way too highly. Now, this exhortation is hard to hear in a culture that prizes self-esteem. Self-esteem is one of the highest virtues in our world today. Everywhere we turn in our culture, we're being schooled on the value of thinking of ourselves too highly. In fact, we can begin to even think that we would be cruel to tell someone that they're not as important as they think they are. I mean, we can begin to think that that's a cruel thing to do, to tell someone, you're not that important. You're you're far less important than you think you are. But that's what God's Word is saying to all of us today. You aren't as important as you think. Now, I don't think that's all that Paul is saying in verse 3. Notice at the end of verse 3, Paul gives a little bit more info on what it means to think with sober judgment. He says, here's how we're to think. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now this is a difficult phrase to understand exactly what Paul is saying 
But I think there are two main options to understanding what it is Paul is calling us to think about here. The first option is Paul could be saying something like this. God gives Christians varying degrees of faith. In other words, we're all at sort of different maturity levels. We understand that. And because God gives faith, faith is a God-given thing, that reality should humble us. God is the assigner of faith, and thus to think with sober judgment is to think of ourselves according to the amount that God has assigned to us, not to someone else. That could be what Paul is saying. But I think there's another option that gets closer to, to understanding the context of the whole book of Romans. Maybe what Paul means here is that there is an objective measure of faith that is a standard by which we should measure ourselves. That standard is not ourselves. That standard is not other people. What is the standard? What what should we measure our faith by? Well, I think what Paul is saying is that we should think of ourselves in light of the gospel that he's been proclaiming through this entire book. We are to think of ourselves in union with Jesus, justified by faith, raised to life, possessing eternal security, etc., etc., etc. And when we think of ourselves in light of this measure, in light of the gospel, how could we think of ourselves above others? How could we think of ourselves as more highly than others? This seems to be the point that Paul is making. The gospel itself guards us from thinking too highly of ourselves. It reminds us that we are sinners who have stored up wrath for ourselves by dishonoring the God who has made us. You see, the only way we can be saved, the only way we can have anything good or beneficial spiritually is because we have a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He died and rose again, and that's the only thing we can boast in. And so in light of the gospel, it is foolish to think of oneself too highly. But the gospel also guards us from another error. It guards us from thinking of ourselves too lowly, in a way too lowly than we should. You see, we have, by God's grace, through faith, we have all, every spiritual blessing that Jesus died to give us. We are justified in Jesus. We are accepted by a holy and righteous God. We have been given the gift of the Spirit of God who confirms that we are sons of God. And thus, friends, there is no room in the Christian life for a Eeyore mentality. Like we don't live with a woe is me, nothing ever goes right for me attitude. We're not pessimistic gloom and doomers. We are united to Jesus. And thus all of our self-worth, all of our importance is in Him and what He's accomplished for us. And so I think this is a command to remember who we are in Jesus. The gospel, the standard of measurement is the gospel itself, is Jesus Himself. When we have our eyes on Him, when we are united to Him, when we are considering ourselves justified in Him, we will not think of ourselves too highly, nor will we think of ourselves too lowly. But we will think with sober, clear, realistic judgment of ourselves. So I hope this verse 3 challenges you as much as it does me. Renew your mind, Paul says, by thinking of yourself with humility, by faith in Jesus. Lord, transform us in renewing our mind to not think of ourselves too highly, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment in light of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, please do that. The second 
counsel that we're given here as to how to think is this. Think of yourself as part of the body. Think of yourself as part of the body. So consider how Paul connects verses 4 and 5 to this counsel to think with sober judgment. How are we to think with sober judgment? Look at verses 4 and 5. For, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so this exhortation is to see ourselves in relation to the community which God has placed us. We belong to Jesus. Therefore, we belong to his body, the church. And so as Paul does elsewhere in his writings, he uses the illustration of the human body. We have one body, yet we have many members. We have many body parts. And every one of those body parts has a different function that makes up the whole. Our ears are not our eyes. Our hands are not our knees. We are one body made up of various diversely functioning parts. And Paul says, in the same way, we are part of a body. The body, the church of Jesus. Though there are many of us, we are to see ourselves as intimately connected together as one body in Jesus. Paul says, here's the language, we are members one of another. We are members one of another. We aren't isolated body parts. We aren't lone ranger Christians. We are members of each other, vitally connected to each other. The arm can't function on its own apart from the body, and you can't disconnect from the other parts of the body of Christ, the church. And so Paul urges us to renew our minds by thinking of ourselves as fundamentally in unity together with each other. You see, one of the first places that Paul goes after exhorting us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, the first place he goes is the relationships we have right here in this room. The first place he goes is to the local church. This is saying something very loudly, friends. This is saying there is no holy and acceptable sacrifice to God that does not include commitment to the body of Jesus. You can't offer yourself as a sacrifice to God if you don't also offer yourself to the body. You shouldn't and you can't run the race of the Christian life by yourself. You are part of a team. You are members of a body. You are stones in a building. You have a place in a family. I can remember a time in my life where I didn't think I needed the church. I was young and dumb. I thought I was more spiritual than those people anyway. They just held me back from what God really wanted me to do. And oh, how wrong I was. I was like a mouth trying to exist apart from the brain and the heart and all the other parts of the body. But friends, I realized very quickly that apart from the body, I have no purpose. I have no connection. Paul says we're to to fundamentally have this as our identity. Who am I? Fundamentally, this is our identity as members who are one body in Jesus, intimately connected together. Being a member of the body of Christ means that we are all necessary parts of the whole. In His wisdom, God has designed the church, this church, to function properly 
when all the parts are working together in harmony, in unity. And church family, as the people in our culture get more and more isolated from one another through technology and convenience, we've got to make the extra effort to press into this connection with one another that we have. We've got to make a special and exerted effort to make sure that this is true and that we aren't slowly disconnecting ourselves from the whole. This is where things like our community groups are so vitally important. Friends, it takes time and energy and effort to be known by others and to get to know others. This doesn't happen automatically. We are members one of another. When you grieve, friends, we all grieve with you. When you rejoice, we rejoice with you. When you succeed, we succeed together. Renew your mind by thinking of yourself as a vital part of the body of Jesus. Friends, this is the exact opposite of running and finding another church when someone offends you or when they do something that infringes upon your preferences. If you're a member here, You are part of this body. You are part of this family. You are connected with all the other parts. Would you permit me for a moment to give you a vision for your life? When you think about what do you want your life to be, when it's all said and done, what do you want to say about your life? Would you permit me to give you for a second a vision that is, by God's grace, attainable? This vision that I want to give you comes from two of our church members, Wayne and Nell Jackson. You will notice that Wayne and Nell are not here this morning. And that is more rare than any of us realizes. This church turned 77 years old this year. The Jacksons have been members at this church for almost 70 of those years. I've been the senior pastor here 11 years, and I can count on my fingers, I think, the number of Sundays that Wayne and Nell Jackson have not been here. And I assume that's characterized all 70 years of their church membership here through all of the changes through all of the changes, through all of the health struggles, through all of the pains of aging, they have just been faithfully committed for decade after decade after decade. Wayne called me the other day with tears and with noticeable grief in his voice. He called me to let me know that it has become too difficult physically for them to make it to church and that they won't be able to attend regularly anymore. Everything in me wanted to tell them that there are many people who would have given up far sooner than they have. There are many people who have let many trivial things, more trivial than what they're dealing with, keep them from gathering with the body, but I didn't say any of that. I just grieved with them, and I thanked them for being an example to me. And when I hung up the phone and began to think, about what just happened, I thought to myself, there there are really only two ways I want to go out. There are really only two ways I want to go out. One, I want to die right here preaching God's word. Or two, I want to one day 
because I can physically no longer get in a car and come to church. I want to call one of my pastors, and I want to say, with tears in my eyes and grief in my voice, I just can't make it anymore. Friends, what is, where does that kind of grief come from? In an 88-year-old man's voice, where does that grief come from? I submit to you that it comes, it arises from fundamentally thinking of oneself as part of the body. You see, one of Wayne's central identities has been, is being taken from him. Is that the vision you have for your life? To give yourself fully to being connected to the body until it is literally stripped away from you? To be so vitally committed to God's people that one day with tears in your eyes, you have to tell one of your pastors that you can't physically make it anymore. Paul says to renew our minds by making this our primary identity. How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as an isolated individual disconnected from the body? Or do you think of yourself fundamentally as members of one another in Christ? Think of yourself as part of the body of Jesus. Lord, please help us renew our minds by making us think this way. Third and finally, Paul says, think of yourself as gifted to serve the body. Think of yourself as gifted to serve the body. So after emphasizing our unity in verse 5, Paul emphasizes the diversity of gifts that we have been given in verses 6 through 8. So Paul says we are one in Christ, but we are not all the same. Our unity is solidified by the diversity of gifts that God has given us to serve with in the body of Christ. Now there's a very important connection I want you to see between verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 speaks of all the individuals in the body of Jesus. We are individually members one of another. And then notice verse 6 says something about each one of those individuals that makes up the body as a whole. What does Paul say is true of each of those individuals that's part of the body? He says each individual has gifts by the grace of God. Now there are other passages in which Paul says this more clearly, but I think we learn it from this passage right here. Every Christian has spiritual gifts to serve the church. Every Christian has been given this grace to serve the body. No one is just a name on a membership role with no purpose. Every Christian is gifted by God to build up, to serve, to strengthen the body. There are no such thing as giftless Christians. And it's important to emphasize that according to verse 6, all spiritual gifts are given by God's grace. No individual should be praised because they are gifted. All gifts are gifts of God's grace, and thus why would we ever think too highly of ourselves or too lowly about others' gifts if they are all gifts of God's grace? And the instruction in verse 6 is that since we have gifts of God's grace, what should we do with them? Look at it in your copy. What, what does Paul say do with them? If we've been gifted, Paul says we should use those gifts. We should use them. If you're in Jesus, you've been gifted. And thus, use your gifts to build up the church. Paul then goes on to list seven specific gifts 
that should be used in the church. Now, obviously, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of all the other gifts because there are different lists in Scripture that list other gifts than these. This is just supposed to be a representative of spiritual gifts. And these seven in particular, I think Paul gives us to exercise in the context of the local church. And the assumption, this is my assumption, I know everybody doesn't share this assumption, but my assumption is that these gifts are available and present in our church today. These gifts were not just for the church at Rome. The same Holy Spirit at work in the church in Rome is at work at Miller Heights Baptist Church. And so which gifts does Paul urge us to use in this passage? I'm going to walk through them one at a time and just give a little sense of what they are. I wish we had more time on every one of these. But first notice Paul lists prophecy at the end of verse 6. He says prophecy is to be used in proportion to our faith. That is trusting God, not faking it. Use the gift of prophecy with confidence that God is speaking to bless His church. Now, of all the gifts in this list, this is the most debated of them all. There's a debate on if this gift still exists today. There's a debate on what it exactly entails. And so what is the gift of prophecy? Well, I'll I'll help you understand a little bit of where I see it as. We know from Paul's teaching on prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12... In 1 Corinthians 14, that the New Testament gift of prophecy is not the same as the Old Testament prophet who declares, thus says the Lord, and then reveals God-breathed truth. New Testament prophets are not declaring new divine revelation that is as authoritative as Scripture. No, Scripture is complete. Scripture is sufficient. But rather... The gift of prophecy seems to me to refer to the ability to serve people by declaring spontaneous truth that connects to a specific need people have. I believe the gift of prophecy is the ability that God gives some people to declare spontaneous truth that connects to a specific need that people have. God gives some Christians the ability just to know how a brother or a sister or a whole church needs to be encouraged or challenged in a specific way. John Piper defines this gift, the gift of prophecy, as a spirit-guided expression of something we otherwise would not know or say, which is powerful for that particular moment and brings conviction or exhortation or consolation for the awakening or upbuilding of faith. Now, it's hard to give some specific examples of prophecy because I don't want to limit this gift in any way in our minds. But let me reluctantly give you a few examples. I read about one time, Charles Spurgeon was in the middle of a sermon. He was preaching on something totally unrelated, and the Lord revealed to him that someone present had stolen the gloves that were in his pockets. The only way Spurgeon could have known that is the Lord brought it to his mind. And there indeed was a man there who was convicted about stealing the gloves that were in his pocket, and he repented then and there. Another less dramatic but no, no less miraculous example could be something like this. This has happened to me. You wake up one morning, you can't get a particular church member out of your mind. The Lord just sort of impresses upon you to call and check on them. 
And as you call and check on them, you realize you had no way of knowing this other than the Lord impressed upon you. You find out that they're in the ER waiting for a significant test to come back. And they had just been praying for God to show up. You encourage them. You encourage them to trust the Lord. You pray for them. And the result of that is that their faith in the Lord is built and it is strengthened by that gift. I think that's the gift of prophecy. And I pray that this gift is active in our church. And I pray that this gift would be active in such a way that it would build up the body of Christ in proportion to our faith. Well, the other six gifts are more straightforward. In verse 7, the second gift Paul mentions is the gift of serving. If God gifts you to serve, we should serve. Now, obviously, all Christians are called to serve. However, some people have this gift of, of God's grace in a special way. Think of deacons. Deacons are recognized, qualified servants who lead in serving. People with the gift of serving don't seek public recognition They are happy to meet the needs that they see in the body of Christ. What would we do without the gift of serving in our church? I mean, think about the number of people who have served us this morning that we don't usually realize are serving us. How many people have served you and you weren't even unaware this morning? Someone got here early and turned on these lights and adjusted the heat. Someone created and printed the bulletins. Someone vacuumed the floor and cleaned the restrooms. People have been planning this service, working on songs, reading, sermons, slides. Sunday school teachers have prepared. Someone made coffee. Someone brought donuts. I know this is really basic, but people with the gift of serving are able to see a need, and their first thought is, how can I meet that need? People with the gift of serving don't say, I wish someone would fill in the blank. You ever done that? I've done that. I wish somebody would do that. No, people with the gift of serving say, look, there's a need. How can I step in and fill that need? We should be like that all the time. But let's be honest. Some people do this way better than others. Find a need and fill it. I thank God for the gift of serving in our church family. Third, Paul mentions the gift of teaching. Teaching is the ability to understand and explain the Scripture so that others understand it. Teachers help us know and apply God's Word. Thank God for the spiritual gift of teaching that builds the body. Now, before we move to the next one, just notice that Paul puts the gift of serving right next to the gift of teaching. I love this. This tells me that those who serve by the grace of God in the nursery this morning are just as important as those who teach The gift of serving is so important. It is far more important than we usually place on it. Fourth, in verse 8, Paul mentions exhortation. Some people have the God-given gift of exhorting us. This word could also be translated encouragement. I assume this is related to the gift of teaching, but particularly focused on coming alongside of us to disciple and mature us. And so the teacher maybe explains to us, helps us understand God's word, and the person with the gift of exhorting helps us apply it, helps us press us toward actually doing what God has called us to do. I would put the gift of counseling under this gift of exhortation. May God give us more appreciation for the gift of exhortation in our church. We need to be exhorted. Each week, we need to be exhorted not to give up, but to keep following Jesus. The fifth gift Paul mentions is the gift of generosity or the gift of contributing. Again, all Christians are called to be generous 
and to contribute, but there are some people that God has gifted to do this in abundance and in specific ways that are used by God to strengthen the body. I thank God for those in our church with the gift of contributing with generosity. The only way we can keep gathering and doing ministry and serving people and supporting missions around the world is because people give faithfully. Let me give you an example. In December, we took up the Lottie Moon offering for international missions. Our small church gave about $13,500 to international missions in the month of December. I think that's the gift of generosity, active in our church, and I praise God for it. The sixth spiritual gift on this list is the gift of leading. Paul says the one who leads should lead how? He should lead with zeal. The gift of leadership is the ability to inspire people to follow a plan. And there is nothing worse than a leader who doesn't want to lead. If God has gifted you to lead, he says, do so with eagerness. Do so with zealousness. And I thank God for the zealous leaders in our church family. Finally, number seven, Paul mentions the gift of mercy. The one who does acts of mercy should do so how? Should do so with cheerfulness. All Christians are called to show mercy. We are called to show mercy in all kinds of ways. But this gift is manifested in some people who do an excelling job at caring for the sick and the poor and the weak. People gifted in this way are looking for those that are marginalized, those those that need their, their needs to be met. And I thank God that we have a lot of people in this church with the gift of mercy who serve our merciful Savior and represent Him so well. Again, this list, of, this list of spiritual gifts is not exhaustive. This is not all the gifts that God has given, but these are representatives of the ways that we serve the body of Christ, that we seek to build up the church. And so let me ask you as we close, which of these gifts do you have? Which of these gifts do you see active in others in our church? When you see God blessing his church with these gifts, thank God for these gifts. Tell that person that you see God at work in them. Tell them you recognize gifts active in their life. And the point is, renew your mind by thinking of yourself as gifted to serve the body. You're not just part of the body. Yes, think of yourself as unified with the body, but you're part of the body to serve the body. You've been given gifts by God's grace, and so the counsel in verse 6 is, let's use them. If you've been gifted with them, let's use them. And friends, the best way I know to discover which gifts God has given you is just to start serving and see what you're good at. Serve in particular ways and ask other more mature believers, do you see this as something God's gifted me to do? Friends, listen, you don't need to take a spiritual gift survey to know where you're gifted. You need to look for the needs, seek to fill them, and you'll find out pretty quickly if God has gifted you in these ways. Are you using the God-given gifts that you have been given to build up the body, or are you just sort of taking advantage of everyone else's gifts? Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by renewing your minds, by thinking of yourself with humility, thinking of yourself as part of the body, thinking of yourself as gifted to serve. All for the glory of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's commit ourselves to him now. Lord, again, thank you for your word.
Thank you for the clarity, the sufficiency of your word. Thank you that you've given us everything we need as a church to honor you, to trust you. And God, I pray that by your word, God, by your God-breathed word, that you would equip us for every good work that you have called us to do so that we would be fully mature, built up in Christ, mature in him. Oh God, I pray, forbid us from thinking of ourselves too highly. Forbid us from thinking of ourselves too lowly. Help us to think of ourselves as part of the whole and help us to think of ourselves as gifted to serve this body, to build up the saints so ultimately you might be glorified. Oh God, work these things in us. Accomplish these truths for us. We pray you do that in Jesus' great name. Amen.